Two Foreskins Walk Into a Bar, a serial novel by Chris Thompson, narrated by Chris Thompson. Chapter 6. Projecting. You were projecting, babes, Marty said. This was Marty's answer to everything ever since he played a therapist in an off-off-Broadway scratch night. Recently, we'd both read the same book on attachment theory and quickly became self-appointed experts. Not a social gathering would pass without Marty or I sighing and with an assured gravitas remarking to those assembled, well, clearly this is an anxious avoidant attachment style. It's a classic case, really. Why else would he ring and not leave a message? The other would nod sagely. If it was my turn to nod, I'd wait an appropriate amount of time before adding, I saw it all the time when I was a social worker. Oh, didn't I mention? I was a social worker for 12 years. Child protection. We workshopped this routine over several social gatherings because Marty and I were always on and every interaction was played to the crowd. Although, of course, if you accused us of steering the conversation towards one of our set pieces, we'd have denied it vociferously and fluttered our eyelids before taking another sip of the Malbec. I was expounding attachment theory to my new therapist, who, patient at first, indulged me, but after a few sessions exploded, You've read one fucking book! I trained for ten years! I sacked him, naturally, and spent a moment grieving the loss of me on his behalf. If he wasn't able to contain his transference issues and accept he loved me, what was I to do? Marty agreed, and he slipped in the word projection for good measure, just like he did now as I stood breathless and manic in his living room. No, 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 I wasn't projecting, Marty. It was him. But why did he run away? Because you chased him. And it wasn't Lionel. Some poor bugger turns up for a blowjob in the bushes and gets attacked by a crazy man. I'd run. It couldn't be. I played it back in my head. Mike's revelation, the invitation to kiss his penis, the vision, and then Mike fucking me. Yes, it all happened. It must have been a preposterous sight, Mike not being much over five foot one and me six foot two, he rutting back and forth on my behind with both feet off the ground, a velociraptor fucking a T-Rex. He was clinging to me as if we just jumped out of a plane and I was the only one with a parachute. I couldn't shake him off. In fact, I carried him with me on my back, his cock still inside me as I chased Lionel through the bushes. Eventually, Mike fell off. There was a slurpy plopping noise as his cock came free before the sound of bones on concrete and a low, winded gurgle from his throat. With Mike behind me, it wasn't long before I found myself on the edge of the park. In front of me, Brooklyn Library. I began to piece it all together. Lionel had returned to the library and come cruising. Accustomed as he was to having his dick sucked at lunchtime, he merely popped over to the park to have his needs met. I scoured the library, racing up and down each shelving unit on every floor. He was, I thought, bound to be hiding somewhere clever. It would have a meaning, probably several meanings in fact, a metaphorical homonym, a magisterial ruse enacted flawlessly that only he and I would understand. Anna Karenina, I thought. Of course. Betrayal, desire, trains. And Lionel grew up on a farm. It was all there. Lionel always identified with Levin on account of the rural themes he dramatised. And I, naturally, was Anna Karenina. Because you're a messy bitch, Lionel would say. And he wasn't wrong. Case in point, 
Here I was, in Russian literature, branches in my hair and mud on my knees, having solved his puzzle. But Lionel was not there. I'm going to need you to put your pants on, sir. I thought this was Lionel, playing a prank, but it was, in fact, a security guard. I looked down and saw that I hadn't buttoned my fly properly after my assignation with Mike, so my shorts had come loose and I'd been running around the library with my ass hanging out. What sport do you play? The security guard asked. Sport? The jockstrap? Oh. Wrestling? I said and hurried out. That was kind of true. The muscle-worshipping site I subscribed to organised an erotic wrestling group and I did own a singlet. The wrestling meets were in a yoga studio in Midtown. I assumed that no one would want to wrestle me due to my skinniness and low self-esteem, but the sessions were refreshingly inclusive. One of my wrestling buddies took a shine to me, and he would seek me out at the start and ask for a grapple. He was handsome, out of my league by a mile, and I felt strangely surprised but proud that he picked me over the others. Only two people could wrestle at a time, so the spectators formed what was essentially a jerk-off circle and stroked their cocks as two men took it in turns to go at it on the mats. In due course, it was our turn. Joe, who has insisted I use his real name, and I took our places and he summarily mopped the floor with me. But not humiliatingly so. I put up a good fight and there were passages of play where he let me win, but then promptly flipped me over with panache. He'd grunt and groan, which felt over-exaggerated as I really wasn't that strong and I'd resist as best I could. After a time, he pinned me down on my back and shimmied forward so his knees were holding my arms in place above my head and he pushed his crotch into my face. After more grappling, he wrapped his legs around me and pulled my singlet down and fingered me. I could hear the sounds of hard dicks slapping against hands and applause of sorts from the men on the sidelines. Joe pinned me down and fucked me on the mat for all to see. By and by, he invited the man with the biggest dick to come take a turn. Soon, a line had formed. Every three men or so, Joe would change my position, but always a variation on a wrestling hold, and he whispered encouragement in my ear as he held me down and instructed each guy on how he was to fuck me. Don't worry, it'll be over soon. I'm very proud of you. I whimpered demurely, but I didn't want this to be over. I could do this all day. It would have been in opposition to the friendly collegiate vibe of the establishment to hog the mat, so we eventually yielded and watched the next partnership take the floor. Joe wanted me to meet his wife, but I needed to think about this. I asked how he'd introduce me, and he said, as my wrestling bud, which I guess was true. His wife was a social worker, specialising in the recruitment and assessment of foster carers, and he thought she and I would enjoy comparing war stories. I'd ever only done one foster care assessment in my social work career, and I didn't finish it because I got taken off the case. The woman, Sophie, was incredibly maternal, and I was a 23-year-old hot mess who, instead of assessing her, would turn up to her house hungover and watch daytime TV. One day, she dared suggest that I had a drug problem. So attacked by this verity was I, I set out to fail her assessment. Thankfully, my manager intervened and Sophie fostered many a deserving child. I bumped into her several years later and fell into her arms and sobbed. I don't even know why. I guess I wanted her to foster me. I told Joe that I had seen Lionel at the cruising ground. He agreed with Marty's theory of projection, but I didn't want to hear this and left abruptly, 
Anyone who failed to collude with my belief that Lionel was coming back to me was given short shrift. If I wasn't having sex, then I was, as much as I could possibly wrangle, alone. For I wasn't alone at all. I was with Lionel. From the moment he left me in real life, I transposed my relationship with him into my mind. Hours would pass during which I would imagine, no, not imagine, this was real to me, my ongoing relationship with Lionel. My interior monologue became a comforting duologue. If I was socialising, I would race home, inventing fictitious reasons to leave, just so I could be with him. I was having an entire relationship with him in my mind. Walking down the street, I'd natter away with Lionel, and he'd answer back. Shopping for groceries, I'd seek his opinion on which spinach I should buy. Not that I'd eat it, which he'd chide me for a few days later when it was discovered limp and abandoned in the refrigerator. When the body is injured, a swelling occurs, and the body sends white blood cells to start the healing. Here, my brain sent me Lionel. Intrusive, reassuring thoughts of him rushed to where it hurt, crowding out what was real and shielding me from feeling the loss. At length, I noticed people staring at me on the subway. I met Marty one day for lunch and he said, You do realise you were talking to yourself just now? I was talking to Lionel, I replied, without awareness or irony. Do you do that often? All the time. We were at a Korean barbecue on St Mark's Place. It was one o'clock, which meant there was a chance I could eat something. I'd been commissioned by two theatres in the UK and I was waiting on the decision from the respective artistic directors as to whether they would produce the plays or not. London was five hours ahead, so I would check my phone constantly, each email notification causing a rush of adrenaline and each email that wasn't the email I was waiting for engendering resentment and pain. I was running out of money and I needed one of them to say yes so I could pay my rent and eat. And I needed them to say yes because my career was slipping through my fingers. Each play had taken about three years to write and their fate, and mine, was in the hands of two people I hardly knew. When one o'clock came, I'd assume London was finishing work for the day and I could bring myself down one DEFCON level of hypervigilance for the rest of the afternoon. I'd wake in the morning around 4am, or more honestly, I'd be coming home under a pellucid morning sky, and the daily ritual of waiting, grinding my teeth, gnawing on my inner cheek would continue. I lived as a clenched muscle, and there was a new countdown clock to sit alongside my vanishing scripts in the drama bookshop, my diminishing bank balance. Marty took a deep breath. I could tell he was deciding whether to say something or not. The waiter came and took our order. We didn't speak. Lionel said something funny and I smirked. Marty screwed up his face and asked me where I was. I'm here, I answered. Later, I was pushing my food around the plate and Marty took another deep breath. Lionel doesn't love you and never will, Marty said. He's clearly got an avoidant attachment style and truthfully, I think you need to show Robert some respect and grieve him properly. Anyone would think you were with Lionel for ten years, not Robert. I looked at Marty and felt my lower lip come away from the top one by a few millimetres. There was a stinging sensation in my widening eyes and I felt suddenly ten degrees hotter. I ran out into the street and retched into the gutter. Over time, I've learned that not every emotion I feel needs to be acted on. But back then, upon my own responsibility, what I felt 
was what I did. I was annoyed that Marty hadn't followed me. I thought we were more in tune than that, but then I remembered both of his feet were in plaster, so I marched back in to continue the showdown. Oh, hello, Norma, Marty said. He then recited some of Norma Desmond's more deranged lines, getting louder and louder when he realised people were watching. No one ever leaves a star. I am big. It's the pictures that got small. I stared at him. Why are you making such a fool of me? Why are you making such a fool out of Robert? He snapped back. I slammed my hand onto the table. You've read one fucking book and you think you're an expert. I marched out the restaurant, turning back to shout, I was a social worker for 12 years! Child protection! It started to rain as I walked back to the subway. I summoned Lionel, but he didn't answer. Nevertheless, I spoke to him, formulating what I would say to Marty in the email I'd send him ending our friendship. I scrolled through Grinder as I walked, each profile a window into a lonely, guarded heart, a miserable life of scarcity and lack. Their smiles don't fool me, I thought. I changed trains at Times Square Station. On the platform to the Q train, three panpipe players were performing to a backing track of Get Lucky by Daft Punk. A group of homeless people, drunk as skunks, were surrounding them, dancing. They weren't making fun of the performers. They were just having a really, really good time. They looked like the happiest people in New York. And I admit, I was jealous. New York hardens you by what you have to ignore, but I'd have given anything to step forward and dance with them, even just for a moment. I was half watching them and half watching Grinder. I saw a profile I recognised. Well, not a profile. A body. Lionel's body. It was his exact flesh tone, and there was a skin tag on the right pectoral above the nipple that I used to kiss gently after sex. Frantically, I typed a message. Lionel, is that... One of the dancing men grabbed me by the throat. You think I'm a dog, don't you? No, I'm sorry. I was staring. I shouldn't have. You think I'm a fucking dog? We both heard the train approaching. He tightened his grip, then shoved me backwards. I fell over the wooden bench, which propelled me harder, and I hit the floor and continued rolling with more pace. My phone flew from my hand and hit the tracks seconds before I did. A dozen hands reached down and tried to pull me up, but I swiped them away and I searched the track for my phone. It was in a puddle about 12 inches from the third rail. I grabbed it and threw myself into the hands of my rescuers who dragged me up. The express train had pulled into the other side of the platform and I broke free from the arms and leapt onto it just as the doors were closing. The train pulled away from the chaos on the platform as the police arrived and the startled onlookers screamed and pointed at me as the train picked up speed and they disappeared from my view. But they weren't pointing at me. They were pointing at the man who pushed me onto the track, who was standing behind me. He looked at me and barked. I ran down the car through the connecting doors into the next carriage. I looked over my shoulder. He'd found a seat and fallen asleep instantly. I got my breath back and remembered. Lionel! My phone was covered in a dark subway slime. After a wipe on my shorts, I continued typing my message to Lionel. Lionel, whatever I did, I'm sorry. Just please let me know you're okay. I pressed send. Immediately, a notification appeared. This user has blocked you. 
next time on Two Foreskins Walk Into A Bar. Wanna spend the night on cloud nine inches? Thanks for listening. If you're enjoying, please rate and review wherever you get your podcasts.